an apocalypse for right now, part three. Our violinist is named Isaac, and there's another violinist, Yitzhak Perlman, perhaps you've heard of him. It's told that he once came on stage and people were rather surprised to realize how severely handicapped he was from a childhood illness. And he came out on crutches, sat down, pulled out his violin, I believe he has a Stradivarius. And the first thing that happened in that performance was that a string broke. And everyone thought that was the end of the show, or at least there should be a long pause, but Perlman told the orchestra to go ahead, and he played the entire piece with minus one string. But they said, and people who appreciate music would appreciate this, that in his passionate playing, that he was actually creating sounds that had never been heard before. And a beauty came forth that was never heard before. And it reminds me of what can happen when we are possessed by our creator. And when we are filled with the spirit of grace, when in our weakness we're made strong, and we should celebrate that, the great gift of our weakness. For he was crucified in weakness, and yet he lives by the power of God. We know the generosity of Christ, because in great poverty of spirit, the greatest poverty we can imagine, he endured the cross, that we would become rich with all the riches of Christ. And therefore, today I welcome the possession of my creator. And may our maker make something that will build us up today. I'm learning to follow the thoughts that I wake up with. And I woke up with the thought of a wealthy young prince. That's what he is. We call him the rich young ruler sometimes, but you have to piece it together from Mark chapter 10, 17 and following, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and following, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and following. You get the picture because he's called an archon. He's called a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus. And as a ruler of the Jews, I ask myself the question, is he a Hebrew of Hebrews? Is he a Pharisee of the Pharisees? He is an archon. He's a ruler. He's not just a young aristocrat, but he's a prince among the Israelites. He runs up to Jesus, as we know, and he says, Good master, what must I do to enter into the life of the coming age, the eternal life? And Jesus starts right off taking him down a peg or two, and says, why are you even calling me good to start with? There is none good but God alone. Was this young prince 
this young wealthy prince among men. Only aware of Jesus Christ after the flesh did he only know him after the flesh. There was another man who said once, I once knew him after the flesh. Even Christ, he said, I once knew him after the flesh. Now I don't know him that way anymore. I wonder if he met him again. And this ruler, certainly, some people think it was Paul. Some people think it was young Saul of Tarsus. And if so, it's interesting because when Jesus said to him, well, you know the commandments. He said, which ones? And Jesus listed a few of the prime commandments. And he said, I've done all these. I fulfilled all these from my youth up ever since I was a boy. I, I fulfilled these. Later, someone else wrote, as far as the law, I was blameless. He wasn't lying. He was blameless. Did that get him into the eternal life, the life of the coming age? No. The most important thing about that, and we've mentioned this several times, is what happened in Mark 10, 21. That's not listed in Luke 18. It's not listed or mentioned in Mark, in Matthew 19, only in Mark, the original gospel. It says that Jesus looked him up and down or looked right through him. He beheld him and Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him as he said, why are you calling me good? There's only one good. Jesus loved him when he said, you know the commandments. Jesus loved him. When he then said, you only lack one thing. You're only short of one thing. Sell everything you have. Sell all of your holdings. He's a very wealthy young man. Sell all of your holdings. Give up all you possess. And he possessed a lot more than land and holdings. He possessed quite a bit of self-reliance and self-righteousness. Give it to the poor. Don't even get a write-off. Just give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And that man went away sad. Now, I ask this question. Was he so sad? Because sadness is the root of what we call resentment, a kind of resentment. Was he so sad in his confrontation with Jesus that he began to resent the followers of Jesus? Realizing he couldn't live up, did he look at people who did follow Jesus and some of whom did give up all their holdings and follow him? Did he look at them with resentment, anger, hatred, envy? Did he even persecute them? Maybe did he even hold the coats of those who were stoning one of their preachers? Young Saul, maybe. Was, was he like him? He was at least quite a bit like this guy. He became a persecutor of the church of God. All because of Rasantamat that he looked at people that seemed to live up to what Jesus required, but they weren't any more than he would, any more than he could. They weren't. They couldn't. They couldn't fulfill any more than he could fulfill. 
They lacked as much as he lacked. But this young man apparently met Jesus again. This time he didn't go away sad. This time he went away a disaster. To be rebuilt by the Lord, the Master. This man had great wealth as far as earthly wealth goes, just like Paul, who of all men could boast in the flesh. He said, anyone can boast in the flesh. You pick him out, I'll take him. I can do it better. I got more reason. Pharisee of the Pharisees, archon, a ruler of the people. Hebrew of Hebrews, speaking of Hebrews. As far as the law, blameless. When we talk about zeal, uh, my zeal was so fervent that I persecuted the church of God. Go figure. As far as earthly wealth, as far as wealth according to the flesh, Paul had it knocked. And this man... This rich young ruler, as we call him, went away sad at the command of Jesus that he had to go sell all his holdings, give it to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. Again, perhaps this sad young man met him again. Perhaps this sad young man had a testimony like Paul said, once I knew Christ after the flesh. I don't know him that way anymore. I do remember him looking at me and loving me when I was the most unlovely man, a most unlovable person. And apparently he kept on loving me as I persecuted his people, as I persecuted him in his people, as I was motivated by murderous Rage in Acts 9-1, breathing out the murder from the innermost being, he became murderous. Just then he met him again. Who are you, sir, he said, and Jesus said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Could he have been saying, we met once before. I loved you then. I still love you. So perhaps this sad young man, and I always kind of had hope for this guy, even not assuming it was anyone like Paul. I always had hope for him. He went away sad, but I, I always like to think that's not the end of the story. Perhaps this young man, this sad young man, would meet Jesus again, the risen Jesus. Perhaps he would know him no longer after the flesh from that moment on. Perhaps he would no longer know anyone after the flesh ever again, knowing that this one died for all, and so all died 
perhaps he would realize that what was impossible for him and for all men, for all mankind, namely salvation, was entirely possible with God. In fact, had been accomplished by God. And again, perhaps this wealthy young ruler, this Pharisee of Pharisees, perhaps, Hebrew of Hebrews, would come to know Christ no longer after the flesh, to know him rather as the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for him. Who loved all human beings and gave himself for us all. For in Mark 10.21, Jesus beheld him and loved him. And then someone wrote in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This love that Jesus had for this unlovable young man became a love by which he gave himself for that young man. All that he said that young man lacked, he provided. So imagine how relieved and how happy that sad young man became when he realized that. It's impossible for a man to save himself, but it's entirely possible with God, for whom all things are possible. It's impossible for us to save ourselves, but it's entirely possible to God for whom all things are possible. Matthew 19.26 plus Mark 10.27 plus the Luke 18 passage. It's impossible for all to be saved, but for God all things are not only possible, but God has done this. He has done it. For when the great love of God for humanity appeared called philanthropia, philanthropy, God's great love for mankind, when it made its appearance, God saved us. He saved us all according to his mercy, the mercy that he shows to all. When did God save us? And I asked this again before, last week, I think. When the great philanthropy of God made its appearance in Christ crucified. He saved us. When his love appeared for mankind, he saved us. Once I had a testimony that said Jesus saved me in January of 1972. Now I say Jesus saved me. I think it was around April of A.D. 30. Don't know the exact day I was saved because I don't know the exact day that Jesus was crucified. Was it April 7th? Well, if you listen to Brian's messages, and you should, we know that it was in the month of Abib. And I think you should listen to those because the real Passover lamb is Christ. Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And when Christ our Passover was sacrificed, God saved us according to his mercy. 
In Romans 11.32, his mercy is that which he shows to all. It's a saving mercy, according to Titus 3.5, and he shows it to all in 11.32. When? When the love of mankind appeared. His mercy appeared. His great mercy and his great love are one in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. When his great love appeared, his mercy, it was extended, and we who were dead in trespasses and sins were made alive together in Christ. You died before you lived, and you were made alive before you were born in Christ. That's the resurrection. That's eternal perspective. For when the great love of God for humanity appeared, God saved us. He saved us all according to his mercy, and he saves each one that way through a bath. Not of water baptism, but of regeneration, says Titus 3, 5, and 6. Not by a bath in water, but by a bath called regeneration by the making new of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out generously. Why poured out generously? Because he poured out the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord the Spirit, who is God himself, who was prophesied to be poured out on all flesh. To have the Spirit poured out on you is to be saved. And when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, each person is saved as all were saved at the cross, as all were saved in his death, his burial, and resurrection, each will be saved by a bath of regeneration according to the renewing of the Holy Spirit. For it is by grace that we're justified, says Titus 3.7, if you follow that line. It is by grace that we were justified. by grace and through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Son of God. For by grace you have been saved and are being saved and will continually and forever be saved through faithfulness. Not yours. Not yours. The faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me the life that I now live, I live by the what? The faithfulness of the Son of God. Not mine. He offered himself to God for us through the eternal spirit as God's spotless lamb, says Hebrews nine fourteen. It's an offering that was received by God the Father as a sweet fragrance, says Ephesians 5, 2. Perhaps this man we're talking about would someday say with Paul, if he didn't say as Paul, someday with Paul, for sure he would say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus beheld me and loved me when I was unlovable. Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. I was crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. And again in Ephesians 5.2, Messiah also loved us 
Messiah also loved us. Jesus beholding us loved us. We see Jesus, but Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us and loves us. Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. That's where we cross over to Hebrews. Hebrews 9, verse 26. But now once he was revealed at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin through the sacrifice of himself. Jesus, who loved that young ruler, was about to give himself for that young ruler and give himself for us. Combining these verses, Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 5.2, Hebrews 9.26, 9.14, We come to realize that it was his love for us that was the force that drove him to give himself for us. So in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we're told, moreover, that when the one died, all died. When the one died for all, all died. That's probably the profoundest declaration of scripture. I don't hear it when I hear people on television who claim to be evangelists telling me I have to admit I'm a sinner, be sorry for my sins, invite Jesus into my life, promise to follow him forever, etc., etc., all non-gospel proclamation. It's not a gospel. Jesus wasn't preaching the gospel to that kid when he said, do the commandments, sell all that you have, follow me. Quite the opposite. That wasn't good news at all. But Jesus did everything that he asked him to do for him. Jesus did for him everything he asked him to do. He gave himself for me, you see. He gave himself for me. He sold all that he had, great holdings, for the joy that was set before him. Instead of the joy that was set before him as he beheld all his holdings, all of heaven and earth, he sold all he had and gave it to the poor, by saving us who were too poor to save ourselves. He fulfilled all the commandments because all the commandments are fulfilled in this, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. And we already did follow him in death, in burial, in resurrection, in ascension, and we're seated together with him in heavenly places. He even did the following for us. So you can imagine how relieved this sad young man became, whether or not he was Paul. And he proclaimed it. So in 2 Corinthians 5.14, and 2 Corinthians was written right around the time that Romans was written, a little earlier than Romans, Paul kind of indoctrinated 
the things that he was finding through stunning and surprising insights, he tabulated or dogmatized a little bit in Romans. And so when we're talking about one dying for all, we have a whole passage on it in 5.12 to 21 of Romans, which is the most profound statement, again, of the unchained gospel that there is. In fact, it begins with 5.8, where God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Therefore, being justified by his blood, we're saved by his life. We've received the reconciliation for one died for all. One Jesus Christ, by his one act of faithful obedience, the all were made righteous. All were justified by his one act of righteousness. All were made righteous by his one act of obedience, even as all were condemned by Adam's one act of disobedience, all were justified by the second Adam's act of obedience. One died for all, and all died, sums it up quite well in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul himself came to this irresistible conclusion. It's an irresistible conclusion, incidentally. That's why I have perfect peace about people who disagree with my contention that Christ died for everyone, that all died when he died, that Christ has universal saving significance. I have not a problem at all. It bothers me as much as a flea landing on a donkey somewhere else. Because I know that it will be an irresistible conclusion to every knee, and every knee will bow, and every tongue, and every tongue will acknowledge Every eye will see the one who is pierced for them. Every mouth will say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. They'll say it willingly. They'll say it not under duress, not by a forced confession. They'll say it freely. They'll say it worshipfully. They'll say it because they will have reached an irresistible conclusion. Paul came to this judgment that if one died for all, then all died. He, you see, he came to this. In fact, the word is a judgment, krino. He came to this conclusion. And krino is related to agape here. This judgment is related to this love. Coming to this judgment, that judgment that he came to that Christ died for all, and that all died when Christ died, led to the conclusion that when he rose, all rose with him. It was an irresistible conclusion. And so what was linked to God's love and Christ's love is a judgment that Paul came to. I came to that judgment one day and I couldn't escape it. I could not escape it. It was an irresistible conclusion. And that's exactly the point where the love of Christ began to control Paul. It was the driving force. Once what drove him was a murderous risantamon. We see that everywhere today. A murderous risantamon. That's what drove him. It said he was breathing out. I like the King James. Breathing out, slaughtering. The very breath of his life was drawn to murder. 
Christians to persecute the church of God? What if God had given up on him then? We do. Well, he can't be saved. She'll never be saved. She's a witch. Literally a witch. How could she be saved? She's something that rhymes with witch. Even worse, how could she be saved? It's not about us. It's not about them. It's not about evil, which is merely the negation of the good. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth became tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu means simply the negation of the good. God did not create the negation of the good. God made the good creation. And when it's all said and done, the good creation, the new creation will have been made and it will be all things. And the only thing that will be negated is that which negates the good. Sin, death, Hades, it's death and Hades that are thrown into the lake of fire because God did not intend death and Hades or sin. God negates the negative. So Paul came to this judgment, and this is where judgment and love come together. Having come to the judgment that one died for all, the love that drove the one, Jesus Christ, to die for all began to be the driving force in Paul the former persecutor of the church of God. What a remarkable conversion. Breathing out murders to being driven by the love of Christ. The judgment that Paul reached that one died for all and that all died when he died linked up with the love of Christ controlling him. Those two are linked and really, the one doesn't happen without the other. The love of Christ, you can say the love of Christ controls you all day long, but if you haven't concluded that one died for all and all died, in other words, if you have not concluded Jesus Christ's saving significance to be universal, don't say that the love of Christ controls you, because it doesn't, and it can't. It's linked to this judgment. Crino, I have come to this judgment that if one died for all, then all died. Because of that, the love of Christ controls me. Why? Because the love of Christ is for all humankind, not a select few. What good does it do, Jesus said, if you greet those that are in your own household or your friends or your pub buddies? That's not his kind of love. And I'm going to explain a little bit of that, what it means to live in a resurrected reality. It's to live controlled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ for all mankind did not control me until I realized the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the absolutely universal impact of his saving work on the cross. When the one Christ died for all, all died. Again, Paul dogmatized this, indoctrinated this in Romans. 
calling Jesus the one who died in Romans 6-7. The one who died is justified from sin, meaning liberated from sin's control. The one who died in Romans 8-34, yea, who is also risen and interceding for us at the Father's right hand. That's what crosses over into Hebrews. Romans 8-34 to Hebrews in its totality, especially 7-25, 9-24. And you can be sure that this same all who died will be made alive in Christ, for as 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, and even says it in a newspaper, under Tetelestai. Easter means the hope that all will be made alive. For in Christ, all will be made alive. Paul speaking there of bodily resurrection for all. But in a sense, all have been made alive. If one died for all and all died when the one died, then what happened when the one was buried? It seems all must have been buried. When he rose, what happened? All must have risen. You say, you see things that way? You must be crazy. No, I see things that way. And the love of Christ controls me. That's all. To God, everyone's living. Everyone's living to God. Jesus said that in Luke 20, 37 and 38. He said to the Sadducees, you guys don't even believe in resurrection. I see resurrection everywhere, including when I introduced myself to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all died at that time when he introduced himself to Moses, but he spoke about them as if they were alive. Because to God, all are alive. The love of Christ controls us, becomes the force that drives us precisely because we've come to the judgment. There's love and judgment. That since one died for all, then all died, so that the all who died would be made alive in the one who died and in whom they all died. Now, what is it? You want to reduce it down to a very simple reduction? Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Living is Christ. To die is gain. Christ is our life. Colossians 3, 4, Philippians 1, 21, everywhere you look. The love of Christ controls us because Christ is in us living and loving. Now, some of you may hold me to the obligation that I should be teaching today about the resurrection of Jesus. It's Easter Sunday, after all. Well, 2 Corinthians 5.14, where we are involved in our apocalypse for right now, if you want to, if you've turned there, happens to flow elegantly into 515. And I'm going to give you what the Greek says, not what A.T. Robertson says or exegetes say. They put a should where there ain't no should and oughts where there ain't no oughts and shoulds where there is no shoulds. When John said herein is love, 
he, Jesus Christ, laid his life down for us, we ought also to lay our lives down for one another, for the brethren. He wasn't saying it in terms of a moral ought. He was saying it in terms of a necessity. Because the one who laid his life down lives in us, so if he's living in us, then he's living in us a life that lays itself down. That's all he's saying. He's not saying you should do this. And you see, the reason people have rejected Christianity is because it has been reduced to a system of oughts and shoulds in the energy of the flesh, which people rightly rebel against. I did. I should just join another affiliation so I can break off with it again. If you're in a moving viewpoint, you're always on the move. Just always on the move. You're not trying to break off from other people. You just keep moving. If they want to keep moving with you, let it be. If they don't, let it be. Second Corinthians 5.14 flows elegantly into 5.15. Look at it. It says, the love of Christ controls us, having judged this. Paul's saying, the love of Christ controls me, Individually, but he's also saying us because this is a plural of association. He's associating himself with you, the apostolate of the 21st century, too. Love is an apostolic attribute. The love of Christ controls us, having judged this. You can't de-link these things. The love of Christ controls us because we've made this judgment. Since one died, it doesn't say if in the sense of an iffy if. This is a fulfilled condition. Since one died in the place of all, and he did, then all died. Verse 15 goes on to literally say, so that we no longer live ourselves. It does not say so that we should no longer live to ourselves. It says so that we no longer live ourselves. And I looked at the exegetes and they say, this is a should. We should live no longer to ourselves. Where's the should? There's no should. There's no should. So that we no longer live ourselves. No, but the one who died on behalf of us and rose. In other words, if he died and we died, when he lives, we live, but he lives in us. It's not we should live to him. It's we, he lives in us. We live in him. It's not that we should, it's that we do. We are alive because of him. Christ is our life. And imagine if Colossians 3, 4 said, instead of Christ who is our life shall appear, it said, Christ who should be our life will appear. This is how it reads, the love of Christ controls us, having judged this, since one died in place of all, then all died, so that we no longer live ourselves. If we all died, he doesn't say we should have died. He died, you should have died. No, when he died, you did die. So when he rose, you should rise. No, when he rose, you did rise. Yeah, but when he died 
and you died, and then he rose. Okay, you rose, but now you should live unto him. No, now he lives in you. He lives as you. You live in him. So this is how it reads in the Greek text. The love of Christ controls us, having judged this. Since one died in place of all, then all died, so that we no longer live ourselves. No, but the one who died on behalf of us and rose, he lives, and we live in him. He who died for us died as us. He who rose arose for us as us. Because he lives, we live. Because he who died for all now lives, then all live. To God, all are alive. That makes you be seated with him in heavenly places to see that. What does God see when he looks upon all the human race? Everybody alive to God. God inhabits eternity in Isaiah 57, 15, not your puny little space and my puny little space and time. Because he who died for all now lives, then all live. And to God, all are alive. All are living to God. Let me say it another way. He who died for the benefit of all lives. Because one died for all, and all died, then when one rose, all rose. Because he lives, we live, in John fourteen nineteen. Because it is not we who live, but he lives in us, and we in him. This is what's being said by Paul. And this is in agreement with Romans 6, 10 to 11, in which it says that Jesus died once and for all. And now he is alive to God. And so Paul says, reckon yourselves. In other words, this is true about you, so just agree with this truth about you, that you also died with the one who died and are alive to God. Reckon that to be true. Reckon, logizomai, means align yourself to that reality. Once you align yourself to that reality, that reality begins to catch up with you and become real. They call it Paul's mysticism. I call it reality. Exegetes begin to say, well, we can't touch this. You know, we don't want to get into this too much. This is Paul's mysticism. He had a mystical side, you know. What you call mysticism, Mr. Exegete, I call reality. Now you say, I don't really understand what you're saying. Well, that's good, because we're not supposed to lean to our own understanding, are we? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. That means the Holy Spirit will speak to you very plainly after I'm done, either when you're on the way home in the car, Or when you're eating your Easter feast or your five-pound Easter egg filled with maple, walnut, whatever that stuff is. Or six months from now, you'll go, bing, wait a minute, that's what he meant. That's what he said. No, that's what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. All this squares in turn 
with a phenomenal statement of fact by Paul in Galatians 2.20. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If when he died, I died. When he rose, then he lives, and I live in him. Those who live no longer live themselves. It doesn't say live to ourselves. It says live ourselves. Leave me to myself and I'll be dead. I can't live myself. For me, living is Christ. So dying, well, that's just a plus. It's gain. It's a profit. It's not loss. I look forward to it. In fact, I understand what Paul meant when he said, I'm, can't, I'm in the strait between two things. I'm pulled by both sides, whether to part and be with Christ, and that's not his choice anyways, but he says, what do I prefer? I prefer to depart and be with Christ, which is far, 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 far better. There's no words that could describe that. And Paul was too smart and too studied to use a bunch of slang words because we, we, like we do because we're stupid and frustrated and don't know the English language. He simply said far, 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 far better. He just kept using the word better, 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 better. Or to be, to stay here, which he said, I know it's better for you to the Philippians. I know it's better for you. So there's times I think, I personally think, I wish I could depart and be with the Lord. I really do. In some days, more than others. In some days, I'm like Elijah and say, kill me, Lord, kill me. Just kill me, please. And the Lord says, well, I'm going to leave you alive. And why do you think I'm, and you begin to, people come into your mind. Your family comes into your mind, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, the body of Christ, the church. He said, why do you think you're still alive? Oh, for them? Yeah. One or two of them actually might need you. And they would be really sad if you checked out right now. So I go, I guess, well, maybe that, really? Somebody would be sad if I was gone. So the Lord says, you're staying. Well, what if the doctor comes in and says, you got this, 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 and this, and any one of them could take you out any minute? God says, that's what he said. That's not what I said. Who gives life anyways? You do, Lord. Who kills and makes alive? You do, Lord. Who makes things out of things that don't even exist? You do. Who raises the dead? You do. Who sustains you in life? You do. Who determines when you're going to check out of here? You do. Those who live no longer live themselves. But he who lives after dying for all lives. And they live not themselves or because of themselves, but he lives. And therefore, we, the only ought in this is that God says, well, you died for them, so you ought to live instead of them. That's what the ought is. To some, this is mystical, and they would say that that's part of Paul's mysticism. And I've read a lot of people. I'm going to read less and less, incidentally, except for Barth and a few more commentaries, and then I'm done. 
I've packed about 300 books over here. They're in the war room and other places. You can check them out. Literally check them out if you want. I'm done. Pretty much done. Except for Karl Barth and a, a few Hebrew commentaries, maybe. But some of these guys say this is Paul's mysticism. And I have to say, no, it's not his mysticism. It's an integral part of the reality that is Jesus. This love, the very love that Jesus had for the unlovable young ruler, the very love of God that demonstrated by God while we were still sinners, the very love of Christ in which he gave himself for us, offered himself to put away our sin, our sin and our sins. By becoming sin himself, this is that love. This is now the driving force of our lives because Christ is our life. Christ lives in us, loves in us, and we live by his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God, not our faithfulness, even as we were not saved by our faithfulness, but his. We were saved by grace through his faithfulness. And we keep on being saved by grace and through his faithfulness. And we will be finally saved and in resurrection bodies of incorruptibility and immortality by his grace and through his faithfulness. And we love because the risen Lord Jesus loves in us. Now here's where it gets downright practical. Seeing the young man who had much earthly wealth and who claimed to have kept all the commandments of God since his boyhood, Jesus loved him. <laughs> oh, that's a mystery. No, that's reality. This love was not because this particular Hebrew of Hebrews, an archon among the Hebrews, was particularly lovable. But because Jesus sees all men clearly and because love, his love... The love of God simply wills the good. The very best good for all people and for each person. When Jesus put the mud in that man's eyes and the man could see all men clearly, it's because he saw as Jesus sees. He sees all people clearly as being alive to God. Now certainly someone who persecutes us and says all manner of evil things about us is not lovable to us. We don't say, aw. In fact, I don't think I've ever said that like that until just now. You know, people see things and they use the overused word cute. And when they do that, I always dread that the next thing they're going to say is, aw, and they do. <laughs> and I dreaded the time when I would ever say the word like that, that I'm not going to say again. And I just did. Holy hell. <laughs> hell has now been made holy. It's not only, in fact, it's holy, empty. The love of Christ that controls us loves the persecutor in the sense that it wills, it wants the good for them. Love doesn't feel all gushy and mushy about someone. It simply wills the good for them. 
someone's persecuting you and you Jesus said pray for those that persecute you what if they hadn't prayed for Paul when Paul was persecuting them they prayed for Paul when Paul was persecuting them and God's answer was to make Saul of Tarsus the murderer into Paul the apostle the great lover of the church When Jesus beheld this man and loved him, it simply meant that Jesus did toward him what he does to all men, all mankind, all men and women. He wills the good for them, the best for them. Because he willed the good for this man, he wouldn't let the man off the hook in his own merits. He wanted the best for this man. And if that man was, in fact, Saul of Tarsus, lately Paul the Apostle, he was doing the best favor he ever did for him at that moment. Jesus didn't behold him and say, Aw, oh, I said it again. He beheld him and loved him because he willed the good for them, for him. The love of Christ. So it's not unreasonable when Jesus said, I say love your enemies, those who are opposed to you, adversarial to you, those who malign you and slander you. Love them. Why? Because you're willing the good for them, which probably means their conversion. Because obviously, if they are against me, they're not converted. I'm only kidding. Love wants the good for those who are controlled by evil. Even for those who are evil and willingly committed to evil. What does God will for them? Why did God love Saul who was not only committed to evil, he was evil. He was persecuting the church of God. God loved him because he willed the good for the evil man. And God's will wins out every time. What does the love of Christ will or even intend for the evil person? That they be made good. God saw all that he created and called it good. God creates mankind in Christ Jesus and calls them good. What does the love of Christ will or intend for the evil that they be made good, that they be made a new creation, and as a new creation to be viewed as good by God. Jesus wasn't expecting something unreasonable when he insisted that his disciples, that's us, the new covenant community, he insisted that we love our enemies in Matthew 5.44. He did. It seems like he prayed, Father, forgive them to people who had nailed him to the tree, demanded his crucifixion, said we had no king and have no king but Caesar, crucify him, away with him. Father, forgive them. He did. He loved his enemies. So if Christ lives in us, he lives and loves our enemies in us, his enemies in us. He loved his enemies and even prayed for the Father to forgive them, even for their evil action of crucifying him because his love willed the good for the evil ones. For the same reason, Jesus was not expecting something apart from sanity. 
when he told his disciples to pray for those who persecute them and bless when they are cursed. And Paul said, even when we're maligned, we continue to make our appeal. If we're being slandered and maligned, can we not pray for the conversion of the slanderer? When we're persecuted, can't we pray? Shouldn't we pray for our persecutors? When the love of Christ began to control Paul, people said, he's nuts, he's crazy, he's off the deep end. He said, no, the love of Christ controls me. My creator possesses me. The policy of praying for persecutors seemed to work out pretty well with the case of those who must have prayed for Saul of Tarsus, the murderous persecutor. They willed the good for him, his conversion. It happened. A most virulent and fanatical persecutor of the church of God became the church's chief apostle and chief builder, upper of the church. What moved them to pray for him? What do you think? We, have, we can surmise at least that some of the new covenant community prayed for him because they were controlled by the love of Christ. Because Jesus Christ was in them loving Paul as he loved the rich young ruler in Mark 10 whom some students of the scripture even theorize was Paul, young Saul of Tarsus. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, a ruler among men, a prince among Jews. Whose conversion, in fact, would occur by meeting the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Once I knew Christ after the flesh, and I thought his death was the death of a fanatic and a blasphemer and a criminal, and justified. Now I know Christ no more like that. For me now living is Christ. If this is indeed the case, then how much joy is there in considering that this sad rich young man was now controlled by the love of Christ and he had seen him, the risen Christ, and seen in his face the days in the days of his flesh, saw the love of Christ for him, and sought again in the face of the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus in Syria. Whatever the case, if it's a man like Paul or if it's like Paul himself, it's a remarkable phenomenon that this Saul of Tarsus, the most zealous persecutor of God's church, and of Jesus the Nazarene, would be so changed so radically altered as to become controlled by the love of Christ, to go from being driven by an internal murderous impulse that arose from his ressentiment-filled heart and caused his very breath to having the love of Christ be the singular driving force of his life and livingness of his vocation and his task and his ministry. So in closing, I just would like to give you the good news that we don't enter into eternal life, the life of the coming age, because we keep the commandments, but because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. We don't enter into the life of the ages because we sell everything and give it to the poor, but because Jesus, who was rich in the extreme, became poor for us in the extreme poverty of the cross. We don't enter life even by following Jesus, 
He has entered into life for us and as us and we with him. For we have followed him, our forerunner, in crucifixion, in death, in burial, in resurrection, and now in resurrected life. The sad young ruler can now be happy knowing this. He may even count all that he had gained in the flesh to be a welcome loss. I write it all off as loss, said this wiser young man, an older man now. For the greater knowledge, the far more exceedingly great knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, our Lord, Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep whom the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead. Father, wake us up to this reality. Make this be our reality. Let us know that this is our reality. And we thank you, Father, that Christ is in us living that we died with him, that we rose with him, that Christ is our life now, that he calls the shots, that he does the loving, that he does the living, that he does those deeds and utters those words that build up, that edify, that he in us makes intercession, that he in us wills the good for all, even for those who persecute us, that slander us and malign us. And there are those. We pray for their transformation, for their great joy of their conversion, that they would come into that great joy. And Father, we pray that as we leave this place today, that we will be glad that we came. We will, glad that we will be glad that we will have come, not because we heard a good message or we heard great songs, we did hear great songs, we did exchange with one another great gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. But may we go from here having been caught up into the joy of the Lord and let that joy be our strength. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.